Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, I want to welcome you back. I also want to take this opportunity to thank all of those who have joined us for our virtual annual event last week. Wednesday's event was a great success, but we, of course, hope to meet again in person soon. A recording of the panel conversations from our virtual event is now available through the Israel Policy Forum's podcast. For those who are new to us, Israel Policy Forum works to educate policymakers, Jewish community leaders, and leaders of the next generation to be informed and effective in their support of U.S. efforts to advance a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, consistent with Israel's security. In this critical moment, we are pleased to continue with our regular Tuesday video briefings. As we prepare to welcome a new administration in the White House and the 117th Congress, your contribution takes on even more importance at this year end. With your support, Israel Policy Forum will continue to be the go-to source for credible, nuanced analysis for policymakers in Washington and for community leaders across the political, denominational, and generational spectrums. So if you have not already done so, please make your gift today and help ensure that the vision of a Jewish democratic secure Israel maintains its relevance and power. Please visit israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Now on to today's program. The series of normalization agreements recently struck between Israel and the three and three Arab states so far has generated polarizing reactions with many countries welcoming these diplomatic developments while the Palestinians fearing isolation, have broadly rejected these moves. Today, we'll address the Palestinian response to normalization and its implication for future agreements. To help us break down these issues, we are really fortunate to be joined by Hussein Ibish. Hussein is a senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, DC. He's a weekly columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and The National, uh, the United Arab Emirates publication, and for 10 years was a senior fellow at the American Task Force on Palestine. Before we begin, a few reminders. We encourage you to ask questions of our speaker, which we will address in the latter half of today's program. To submit a question, please type it out in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Next, a recording of this program will be posted later on today to our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, as an episode of our Israel Policy Podcast. With that, Hussein, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ms. Gelman. Great to be with you and your audience at Israel Policy Forum. Please call me Susie. Okay. Uh, thank you, Susie. Hussein, could you please begin by briefly explaining the Palestinian response to Arab state normalization with Israel, how these agreements have been received in other Middle East capitals, and whether the Palestinian response has shifted since the Abraham Accords were first announced? Yes. Okay. So uh, let's take it in order. Uh, the response, particularly to the first two, uh, which were the UAE um, especially, and also uh, Bahrain, uh, that were the first two countries that announced that they were initiating a normalization process with Israel. Um, outside of what Palestinians had understood the terms of the Arab Peace Initiative to be. And I, th I think we'll be able to flesh that out a little bit um, in this conversation. Um, but in, in a way that Palestinians felt um, undercut their national strategy, has sort of d disintegrated their national strategy, which um, goes to the heart of what was wrong with it. In other words, that it was... Uh, they were giving power to <laughs> define that to other people. Um, they uh, responded to that in, furiously. They felt that they had been betrayed. They felt that their understanding with the Arab countries based on the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative, which was a Saudi proposal um, that was adopted twice unanimously by the Arab League and once unanimously by the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, um, uh, which linked normalization uh, with Israel to uh, a two-state solution uh, was being betrayed. And they felt that they had been abandoned, that they had been betrayed, that they were, uh, you know, sort of being tossed aside in a, in a very cynical way. Um, and they were very upset. The 
reaction to the next two set of countries that have announced similar moves, uh, that is Sudan and uh, most recently Morocco, though how far the Moroccan agreement will ever go remains to be seen. I, mean, I think that's a m more tenuous than the other three, has been a lot more muted. They didn't have much to say about Sudan. Uh, they really weren't relying on Sudan. And I think that they had long considered that Sudan post-revolution, Sudan experienced a, a popular uprising, uh, you know, recently, and the long-standing dictatorship fell, and a consortium of military and civilian leaders uh, with a power-sharing agreement. It's really a military government, but there is a civilian component that's supposed to take over after a while. Um, shifted Sudan very firmly into the orbit of Egypt and also to some extent the UAE as well. And, and I, I just think the Palestinians had never relied that much on Sudan. Uh, and then Morocco, they've had nothing to say almost at all, um, because I think, again, they really had never relied on Morocco. And they had understood Morocco to be relatively friendly to Israel for a um, couple of decades now uh, and not regarded Morocco as part of uh of an, uh, a Middle Eastern anti-Israel coalition or pro-Palestinian is probably w the way they would see it, coalition and just as a marginal player. So in that sense, it's shifted over time. In addition though, after the initial fury, uh, where there was a great deal of anger, particularly directed against uh, the UAE and Abu Dhabi and its royal family in particular, and Muhammad bin Zayed, the de facto crown prince of Abu Dhabi and the de facto leader of the UAE. Uh, it was very personalized, very angry, very bitter, full of, you know, st but stabbed in the back and treason, treachery, betrayal. It was very personalized, very emotive, very charged language. Uh, at a certain point, uh, when the spleen had been vented for a couple of weeks, uh, President Abbas actually publicly told Palestinian officials, because there are so many of them going around saying things that it couldn't be done behind closed doors. It had to be a public call so that everyone would hear it uh, all simultaneously. He said, you know, back off, stop with the harsh criticism. And in fact, the harsh criticism uh, did stop. The other policy shift that reflects a, a certain change in um, attitude is it's not that the Palestinians have sought to rebuild ties with the Gulf countries or with the UAE and Bahrain, or Saudi Arabia, etc. It's not that, uh, though they are, they are looking to do that. But what they have done instead, which I think is very telling, is they have uh, at the invitation at the urging of the Biden, incoming Biden administration, resumed pre-existing ties to Israel. When uh, the Israelis began moving in the direction of annexation, the PA cut off ties to Israel. And two most substantive elements of that were security cooperation, right, which, which provides for, um, especially for security for Israel in regard to the uh, pockets of Palestinian control in the West Bank that, that the Israelis don't rule directly, right? And the other was uh, the PA's uh, tax revenues that Israel collects for the Palestinians under the 1993 uh, agreements because the Palestinians aren't sovereign. The developing governments tend to get most of their income taxes, not from, in uh, get, get their um, revenues, not from income taxes, but from import and export taxes. Because the Palestinians don't control their borders, and they were not going to control any ingress or egress in the 1993 agreements, oh, Israel was still going to do that. The Israelis were going to collect those taxes of things coming in and going out <clears throat> and transfer them to the Palestinians. They weren't taking that money because they weren't contacting the Israelis. So now the status quo ante is restored. And I think based on that, you can speculate that ultimately Palestinians are going to have to seek to rebuild their ties to these countries. Uh, thank you for that uh, op the, that opening. Um, sure. What steps, Hussein, do you think the Palestinian leadership is undertaking to prepare for the arrival of the Biden administration? Yeah, well, uh, that's a good question. Lots. Uh, because they are really counting on the Biden administration to reverse a lot of what the Trump administration has done uh, 
to transform U.S. policy away from one focused in a in a consistent, long-term, and bipartisan manner on a two-state solution predicated on the framework of the 1993 Declaration of Principles that was signed between Israel and the PLO with the U.S. and Russia as co-signatories, um, and, and push U.S. policy, at least under Trump, to one oriented towards the creation of a greater Israel based on wide-scale annexations in the occupied territories with, with a Palestinian state, so-called, consisting of, of um, you know, semi-autonomous Bantustans, a little archipelago of, of self-ruled areas, uh, you know, really sort of a, um, a formalization of a version of the status quo with areas A, B, and C and in this de facto greater Israel. Um, and at least I think the, the Trump administration has been very successful in shifting U.S. discourse to create space for that annexationist vision within mainstream politics, especially on the right. It's now no longer only fringe loonies who will basically say, I'm not interested in a two-state solution. I believe in Israeli annexation, and uh, that's what I want, um, as it was, I think, before Trump. I think he's carved out a space for um, you know, extremists, particularly evangelical, uh, you know, sort of second coming types, the war of apocalypse guys, to sort of um, be foursquare in favor of annexation and the greater Israel idea. So that I think the Palestinians are looking to Biden to, to restore the U.S. commitment to a two-state solution, to reiterate that annexation is not the goal. The goal is a two-state solution with a viable sovereign Palestinian state alongside Israel. Maybe it's, it's um, you know demilitarized, maybe it some other things, but the, the U.S. position remains the logical consequence of the 93 agreement, which is two states. And that because of that, the United States is opposed to settlement activity, especially settlement activity that's strategically impactful, that changes the equation. And that the United States is opposed to to any additional annexations of categorically not. Now, the UAE did extract a concession on annexations, not from Israel, but from the United States in private. But it's it's pretty solid that the United States would not recognize any Israeli annexations through the end of 2024. And that was the Trump administration that made that promise. So I think it's pretty clear that the Biden administration won't be doing that. And it's kind of hard to imagine Israel uh, engaging in serious annexations with opposition from Washington. And what would the point of that be? Because Israel does actually control these territories. It's a branding, it's a rebranding uh, exercise and a political change. So if it doesn't come with the support of Washington, it's sort of pointless. In addition, I think um, the one thing that the agreement with the UAE has succeeded in doing is making the Kushner plan, the Peace to Prosperity plan that was released just a little less than a year ago in January of, of this year by the Trump administration that, that kicked all of this off by inviting Israel to annex 30, 40% of the, of the West Bank, including the Jordan Valley that would completely surround any potential Palestinian state. Um, it makes it moot as annexation is off the table for the foreseeable future. So what Palestinians are looking for is a confirmation that it's moot and a confirmation that Israel cannot in the future say, okay, the starting point is not previous negotiations, nor even the 93 framework, right? Which, which sets out the final status issues and, you know, uh, has been the framework until now. No, it's going to be the Kushner plan. And we'll begin with the Kushner plan. We'll negotiate from there. And I think Palestinians are very keen on getting a statement out of Biden that that's not the case. They know that Biden is not going to move the U.S. embassy back from West Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. They're not even going to ask for that. But what they would like, I think, is first the reopening of the PLO mission in Washington to reestablish U.S. relations, diplomatic relations and relations generally with the Palestinians that Trump broke. The Trumpian style is I take everything away from you. And then you negotiate with me to get little bits of it back. I guess this is the way they do real estate in Manhattan. I have no idea. But or Queens, wherever it's done. This is not usual international relations, but that's the way they do things. Fine. So Palestinians now start from zero 
with the United States. But it would be pretty easy and, and only sensible for the Biden administration to uh, reopen the PLO mission in Washington, which is the de facto Palestinian embassy in D.C., it's in DuPont Circle. Uh, and I mean, it could move, but that's where it has been. And uh, to the one of the things that happened when uh, the embassy was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is that the consulate in East Jerusalem, which is the de facto American embassy to the Palestinians, was closed. And its work was subsumed into the embassy in West Jerusalem under the probably most fanatical pro-Greater Israel U.S. official of all time, David Friedman. And I think the whole point was to kind of participate in, to, in that, but in, in, in the drive to kind of um, eliminate U.S. relations with the Palestinians. But what that has meant with no U.S. Uh, embassy to the Palestinians and no, no U.S. Mil um, political a diplomatic mission that Palestinians could easily get to or get to, you know, with any regularity. It's very hard for them to get to West Jerusalem. It's not even that easy to get to East Jerusalem, but it's really a challenge to get to West Jerusalem. So, you know, it's, it just doesn't make any sense. What it's saying, if you do that, is we don't want to have diplomatic relations with you. And closing the, the mission in D.C. certainly does that. And it's been hard even to validate documents. You know, if you want to do trade or something, you, you need validated documents and that hasn't been possible so that they'll certainly be looking for that aid needs to be restored it's been cut to zero absolutely zero even people to people peace building stuff is canceled security cooperation aid is canceled all this stuff is canceled so they'll be looking for that and uh certainly looking for the biden administration to, to shift u.s policy back as much as possible away from uh the trumpian uh, at least implicitly pro-greater Israel agenda to something that is in, th in theory pro-two-state solution, anti-annexation, and that in practice gives the Palestinians a working dialogue with the United States, which they have not had under, under um, Trump. Uh, in, by the way, in order to get there, not only have they um, resumed uh, ties to Israel, which again, you know, lets them get hold of their money it's 80 percent or something of their monthly budget they need that they need their money uh and they're, they're getting it again um they got a billion dollars of it off of israel a few weeks ago uh in addition to that they're serious about changing the structure of their payments to prisoners which uh, has been described as pay for slay and as promoting terrorism and as rewarding extremism and uh it was an, you know, it was an arrangement that they would pay prison, the families of prisoners in Israeli jails was just understood from the beginning, even by Israel as a normal thing. If they're going to be the government, they're going to pay family. I mean, people have to eat. So where are they going to get their money from? But it, it ended up over time evolving into a way where uh, in many cases it could pay more depending on how heavy the sentence was. And that then could look to people who were un, unfriendly as rewarding extremism. I don't think it was ever meant to do that. I think in, in domestic Palestinian political context, it has different signification, but clearly they need to answer this charge and they're, they're cognizant of that and they want to make a change that will satisfy, if not Bibi Netanyahu, which probably won't, but at least Joe Biden and his team. And so that, that's where all of this is going. And I think they're very hopeful. But again, they were very hopeful when Trump came in. And I remember they had a big gala in over the Mandarin Oriental about six months after Trump came into power when Abbas was here. And they were just high as a kite. Even the most dour Palestinian officials, people, Eeyores, Palestinian Eeyores, you know, were, were, were upbeat. And a lot of us were telling them, look, you, you don't know what you're dealing with here. This is not going to be great. Um, and I think they should, again, not be too keen on anybody else other than themselves. By the way, Zane, I was also at that event at the Mandarin yeah. Oriental. And I know exactly what you're talking about. The mood was... Very upbeat at the time. Irrational exuberance. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, well, I think it's been a sobering four years for sure. Um, yes. 
You recently wrote in Bloomberg that prospective steps undertaken by the incoming Biden administration to restore the pro-two-state consensus Mm -hmm. in American foreign policy should be accompanied by steps to encourage Arab state diplomatic engagement with Israel. How can normalization be leveraged in service of better Israeli-Palestinian relations? Okay, so the first thing is, I think we have to accept that the we've gone beyond the logic of the Arab Peace Initiative, right? The the Arab Peace Initiative, when when one asked, when I asked, put it that way, <laughs> uh, Palestinian officials and leading intellectuals over the past, I don't know, five, six, seven years, what's your national strategy? They would either mention the API, the Arab Peace Initiative, or describe the API without using those words. In other words, they were counting on the Arab states acting as a block to incentivize Israel to come to terms on at least moving towards a two-state solution, if not agreeing to a two-state, at least easing the occupation. That was their leverage. You know, what's your strategic leverage here? Well, we're, you know, we're not going to use violence. We know boycotts doesn't work. You know, the internationalization thing hasn't gotten anywhere, but, but we have the Arabs, right? What has ended up happening is that it, it, a, a group of Arab states has redefined the uh, linkage between normalization and um, ending occupation and reverse the chronological order here so that, you know, it was always understood by Palestinians and I think early on by everybody that it was um, occupation first, normalization after. But now obviously the UAE, Bahrain uh, and others believe that it is uh, normalization first and that's the way then you can deal with the occupation if and hopefully you can. And that, that, that what they're implicitly saying is Occupation is not the only issue we're dealing with here, right? So, so Palestinians, I think, are going to have to uh, come to terms with the fact that now they're they're living in a in a world where they're dealing with Israel bilaterally, and there's not going to be a kind of a package Arab deal which carries them to their to their goals, right? Having having accepted that, then it becomes a matter of trying to get the states especially potentially Saudi Arabia, because that's the big plum. There are lots of Arab states that are not going to do this. And there are uh, a couple of Arab states that could, that probably will if they can, but they'll do it just for their own reasons. And I mean Oman and Qatar, both of which are likely to want to do this. The Omanis are held back, I think, by the transition from Qabus to Haitham, which is a major historical shift for them, and they just don't need any extra headaches at this point. But they're all but there, and they've been all but there for a long time. Uh, it's just a question of timing. Qatar, I think, again, all but there, but but they're held back, especially in the context of the boycott of Qatar, by uh, strong reliance on Turkey and even a reliance on Iran, and they have to be very careful who they annoy. But clearly also Qatar is is there, but these are countries that would do this for their own interests. I think Saudi Arabia is the one country that Israel's interested enough in and that has a really complicated calculation, um, you know, that involves Arab leadership and Islamic leadership and their own domestic politics and their own complicated attitudes um, about Israel, that it's possible that some element of Palestinian concerns could be brought in, potentially. Uh, so you'd need to work with the Saudis and, and uh, seriously talk to them about how, uh, in the course of those conversations, those issues can be folded into those understandings. That's first thing. Second thing is, it is actually true that on a more quotidian, day-to-day lived level, Countries that have had relations with Israel, Egypt and Jordan, uh, have been better able to argue for, as I say, quotidian limited Palestinian interests than countries that don't have relations with Israel. And so at a certain point, uh, you should, if in my view, uh, Palestinians would be well advised to look to ultimately explore with a country like the UAE, no matter how bitter feelings are on both sides, and they are bitter right now, there's anger on on both the Gulf side and the Palestinian side, whatever, they still could find that in the long run, countries like the UAE, Bahrain, and any other Gulf country that does this would want to 
demonstrate in the long run that they haven't abandoned the Palestinians, as they say. And just saying, well, but we, okay, but we took occupation off the table, uh, annexation off the table for a while is maybe not enough. Uh, and that, you know, they could be in a position, especially either collectively or individually to intercede for Palestinian interests, not on the biggest picture, but on things that are valuable, you know, and useful. Um, so that's one thing. So what my the point I'm making is that at a certain point you you gotta you gotta accept you're not going to be able to stop this normalization right the the the, the linkage between normalization and occupation is broken for much of the Arab world it's it's it was never really there uh, at least for a long time and it's broken and each country is making its own individual separate deal right they they all have their own uae is the only country with a very long and complex list and and a very you know which is trying to build a real partnership with israel at multiple levels and they're charging four square into this and right now there's this kind of dreamy hazy honeymoon between uae and israel that ultimately can't last i mean they're just enchanted with each other at the moment but that that's you know the first glow of, of a new partnership. They see a lot of opportunities with each other on multiple registers, right? For Bahrain, it's about strengthening the coalition against Iran. For Sudan, it was about strengthening the, the ties with Egypt and the UAE, the anti-Muslim Brotherhood coalition, and getting off that terrorism list, which this government of Sudan doesn't belong on. Morocco, uh, Morocco is you know firmly fixated on the Western Sahara issue. They've made it very clear. Uh, Trump's acknowledgement of Moroccan sovereignty in West, Western Sahara is not sufficient to create a normalization process with Israel. It's sufficient to reopen pre-existing liaison offices. They want to know that that recognition is transferable to a democratic Biden administration. It's an American and not a Donald Trump administration. If they get that out of the Democrats too, then I think you'll see normalization. I think if, if Biden rescinds it or drags his feet or coughs and hems and haws, I don't think the Moroccans are going to move unless they hear what they need to hear from the Democrats on Western Sahara. So my point is every, every Arab state has it, that's doing this has its own timetable, and they all have different agreements. Like the Abraham Accords was signed uh, by uh, Bahrain and the UAE at the same time, but it's a very hazy document. It's full of warm humanitarian feelings. I'm sure it was drafted in, in the UAE because it's full of this, you know, high flowing humanitarian language that the UAE has become brilliant at. And it's full of, of, of uh, aspirational, it's Abu Dhabi-tastic, right? It's full of aspirational glory, which they're wonderful at. But the actual agreement that was signed that day was between UAE and Israel. The Bahrain agreement came a few weeks later and it's different. The Sudan agreements are different. The Morocco agreement is very, very different. And if even it's very, very limited. So as I say, now that means that it upends the normal, the, the pre-existing Palestinian idea of seeing the Arabs as a block on which Palestinians can ride into independence. But they're going to have to start thinking about the bits and pieces and how to work the bits and pieces. And that's just adapting to a painful reality. Hopefully, though, what it dictates is the need to make your own national strategy and not hand the definition and implementation of your national strategy to somebody else who might suddenly find that they have a different um, interpretation of it because their interests have changed. So I want to get back to annexation, but in a different form. Recent Israeli government actions, including developments on sensitive settlements in East Jerusalem and Knesset legislation legalizing 65 outposts in the occupied territories previously considered illegal under Israeli law, seem to violate the spirit of the agreement between Israel and the UAE, which called for Israel to suspend West Bank annexation. Is there any appetite on the part of the Gulf states or other Arab governments to enforce these understandings and have the Palestinians called on them to do so? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because, well, I don't think they do that because there is no understanding bilaterally between Israel and uh, any of the Arab countries on, on any of this stuff. It's an understanding with the United States. The second thing is, <clears throat> it's about de jure annexation, not de facto annexation and settlement activity. I don't think there was ever any expectation 
that Israel was going to do anything other than what it wants on on uh, settlement and and colonization in the occupied territory. So it's hard to do that. However, um, I think it's something that ultimately does become a factor. Um, there ha- there was a really interesting change. Bahrain initially indicated that it was not going to make a distinction between settlement products and uh, products made in the actual state of Israel. And that didn't last very long. And very quickly they said, oh no, we are going to label settlement goods as settlement goods. And I think over time, as the honeymoon winds down and the glow of opportunity wears off, it may really become possible to start pushing that issue. I think actual, you know, sort of um, de jure annexation is off the table, not only until 2024, because it doesn't make any sense to do it without Washington. Even beyond that, if, if the whole normalization process is not completed, and by which I don't mean just with these four countries, but with all the countries that it might be done with, then the incentive for Israel to change the sign on parts of the West Bank, because that's what it amounts to, right? Israel does, in fact, control these territories. It, there wouldn't be any change other than a branding change, a political change, a, a sign change. Um, and therefore, um, give up getting something tangible for an assertion that is fundamentally intangible um, it, it would not be there. And so I, th- I think that as long as this process, go- process goes on, the de de jure annexation will not happen. De facto annexation can probably be held back if the United States and Israel's new interlocutors, and in the case of the UAE partners or friends in in the Arab world said to the Israelis collectively, uh, and and the Europeans and others, this is not okay with us. You know, we, we have these relations with you, but uh, we have them in spite of this kind of behavior, not because of it. And there's a point at which you can push us too far. And if you uh, completed thus and such, it would damage our relationship. Now, I don't think the Arab countries that are normalizing are ready to do that now because they really do, especially the UAE, really wants to do this for their own national interests. But once it's completed, then you might see uh, certainly a move in that direction. I think the United States could take the lead in this. If the Biden administration were to draw a firm line, a lot of this has to do with Washington. I mean, particularly for the Emirates, they wanted to repair grounds with not only solidify things with Trump, but also repair ties with the Democrats. They knew the Democrats would love this and they did love it. I mean, by this, I mean the normalization with Israel. Uh, and they wanted to draw a distinction between themselves and the Saudis, which exists, but it wasn't that widely understood in the United States. They wanted to make all kinds of statements that were appealing to Americans on both sides of the aisle and prepare for this transitional moment that, that they're in. And it's helped them a lot. Uh, if they knew that taking a strong stance uh, on an issue like this would be supported by the United States, they'd be much more likely to do it. If they were, even more, if they were simply agreeing with the United States, then I think it would be much more plausible to do that. My point, though, is I don't think Palestinians would be wise to wait for that. I think they need to, um, I think they need to move past waiting for others to help them in that sense. I mean, not that they have a lot of options, but that the folly of counting on others um, has been demonstrated again. Zane, could you give us an overview of the dynamic between the Palestinian Authority and the PLO leadership and the UNI- and the UAE? Um, the UAE hosts Mohammed Dahlan, someone yeah. Mahmoud Abbas views as a rival. How does this impact? Oh, it's that? tremendous. Oh, it's not just a rival. The two despise each other at a visceral and personal level. I think the role of Dahlan is exaggerated uh, often, by the way. I mean, he is greatly detested by the leadership, and he's not very popular with the Palestinian public either. Um, but 
you know, because he's a wealthy Palestinian who's close to the UAE royal family, I mean, he, he tends to become sort of the focus of this conversation. This isn't about Dahlan. If Dahlan didn't exist, all of this would have happened more or less the same way it did, in my view. This is, this is a very core UAE national interest. So the relationship right now is deeply strained. Uh, I think the UAE... Uh, um, feel strongly, and so do, do the leaderships in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, that uh, Palestinians have been um, uh, not only ungrateful for the help that they've given them, but also have not taken their interests into account, that they've been taken for granted, that they've been, um, uh, in a sense, sort of um, taken advantage of. And uh, so I think there is a sense of feeling held back by not just by the Palestinians, but by the issue of Palestine. Right? Uh, and if you want to hear a really good explanation of this, that is more from a Saudi than an Emirati point of view, but it sums up a, a point of view that's very common in the Gulf, uh, among Gulf leaders. Listen to Prince Bandar, former ambassador to the United States, interview with Al Arabiya. It's fairly long one in English. It's online. Um, he says they're openly in public, no more nor less than what I've been hearing for a couple of years from, you know, Gulf leaders who behind closed doors. The two operative sentences in his interview are the Palestinian cause is just, but they have ineffective leaders. The Israeli cause in the occupied territories is not just, but their leadership is effective. And the unstated corollary is, so what do you want us to do? You know, we are, we're alone, we're friendless, we're facing Iran, Turkey, et cetera. What? You know, we're supposed to ignore that reality, that important strategic fact. So that, that's one. The other is the idea that um, historically Palestinians have not taken, uh, in the case of Bandar, Saudi Arabia's interests and in the case of other countries, other into account when they have rushed to side with whoever is pandering to them the most, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, some leftist leaders in, in the 70s or Saddam Hussein in 1990, or now the overtures from the PA to Turkey, which are, again, a repetition of that, that is just knee-jerk and bizarre and, and completely pointless in my view. There's no, they'll, you know, already it's failed. They're back with the West again. I mean, that's where they belong and that's where they're going to be. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, there's been a sort of really um, uh, weak performance in regard to shoring up their relations with some of their bigger benefactors in, uh, in terms of the Arab world that has plagued the, uh, the Palestinian national leadership. Now, the Palestinian side is furious. Right? They feel that here are countries that have never really cared about them, that have exploited their issue, that have treated their people badly or indifferently, uh, that have um, cynically used their cause, um, you know, strategically, and then thrown it aside like a banana peel when it's become um, uh, inconvenient, and who have chosen to uh, side with their oppressors uh, in order to achieve some very cynical goals of their own, most of which involve money and power. Uh, and they are enraged. They, they really feel that they represent a set of principles of honor and of decency that, uh, and the betrayal of them is a betrayal of some very fundamental human rights uh, human principles and Arab, you know, values. Uh, and, you know, so, I, I mean, look, I think there's a case to be made. I, if, if I was talking to an angry Gulf leader or an angry Palestinian, uh, I wouldn't want to try to make the case against either of them. They, they, they have pretty good arguments on both sides. And I, I mean, I, I get why Palestinians are so angry but I get why Gulf countries are doing this. You know, the thing about looking at it from the outside is the Gulf countries have, especially the UAE and, and Bahrain and all, they have explanations for why they're doing what they're doing. They are not 
incorrectly described as rationalizations. In other words, when they start talking about annexation and how this is actually proof of concept of the Arab Peace Initiative, and this is the two-state solution in action, that's, those are rationalizations. That's not why they're really doing what they're doing. But they do have good reasons for doing what, what they're doing. And, they, and the question is whether they should be expected to compromise their own national interests for a cause that appears stymied and stuck and led by a leadership that doesn't look like it's going to be able to get anywhere. And what's to be gained from that? So, I, I mean, I think, in other words, when you strip aside the emotions and strip aside the rhetoric, you're left with two sets of people who have legitimate interests that don't coincide. And therefore, they're angry with each other. And you can understand why both of them are angry. I'm going to turn to audience questions in a second. I have one more. And remember, if you want to ask a question, please type it in the Q&A box. Hussein, some have attributed the Israel-Arab state rapprochement to the Iran nuclear deal and the Obama administration's perceived inattention to threats posed by the Iranian government. How would a potential U.S. re-entry into the Iran deal impact U.S. Gulf relations, and could this have any effect on Israel-Arab normalization? On the second part of the question, no, it won't uh, have any effect uh, because the situation is what it is. Um, you know, I think what that does is it, it mistakes a tiny piece of the pie for the whole pie. The, the JCPOA and the whole disillusionment of the Gulf countries, the pro-U.S. Gulf countries with the United States, that is not just based on the JCPOA and Iran. It goes back to uh, the failure at Camp David to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian issue, to, to the invasion of Iraq, to the, uh, the red line on Syria. To many, there are many moments when the United States has pers- been perceived to be uh, a, a, a country that is not what it used to be. Under George W. Bush with Iraq, it looked like a country with bad judgment going into Iraq. And the Gulf countries were all absolutely against that. And they were right. Uh, under Obama, it looked like a country that simply didn't care about its friends and didn't live up to its words. I mean, sort of abandoning Mubarak, not standing by allies in Syria and, and the, the red line business. And then there was opening up a dialogue with Iran without without communicating what was going on properly to Gulf countries, and I, I don't know about Israel, but the Gulf countries were left wondering, what is this? You know, What's going on here? Uh, they, there should not have been any surprises for them. They should have been, not necessarily at the table, but that, that the idea that they were dreading turning on the TV every morning for what they might see about Obama and Iran was really not uh, okay. And now under Trump, in addition to bad judgment and unreliability, you have unpredictability and kind of craziness. And you know, the fire and fury one day, and I'm in love with Kim Jong-un the next day when the North Korean policy hasn't changed. What's this guy? I mean, you would find him ready to invade Iran one moment, and then uh, snogging with Hassan Rouhani and Zarif in Geneva the next day. I mean, why not? You couldn't say it wouldn't happen. You just don't know. So you have a country, therefore, that, that looks increasingly like it's, it's uh, not intelligent, not reliable, and just plain old nuts, one on top of the other, without any of those people correcting it. So, so that's, that's the first set of doubts. The second thing is, forget about all of that perception. The bottom line reality is, all of this this rapprochement is taking place in the context of the development of a multipolar world, right? We had, at at the end of the Cold War, we had a a unipolar world. We had the American moment. And probably around the time of the invasion of Iraq, it fell apart and, and the unipolar world began to crack. But what we have now during the Trump era, and it's not because of Trump, it's just because of chronology, is the real emergence of a multipolar world. In the Middle East, the resurgence of Russia, the, the creeping introduction of China as a presence on the ground, the rise of Iran as a regional superpower, of Turkey, the re-engagement of Turkey as the leader of a Sunni Islamist bloc with, with, with ambitions. And basically, it's no longer possible under the current circumstances, given the 
the diffusion of power in the world, the exhaustion of the American people, and the lack of any appetite in the United States for deep engagement in the region, and, and certainly not for anything that would involve force in the region, uh, it means you can't rely on the United States. In the past, you could say easily in the Gulf, well, the Americans would take care of it. And in 1991 and 1991, they did. That, that was the template. You know, if, if, if Iraq invades Kuwait, the United States will, with some allies will come in and take care of it. And that was sort of the model. And that model is dead in theory and practice and in every way. I mean, you might hope that they would do something and maybe they would, but maybe they wouldn't. Therefore, you can't count on it. So strategic diversification has been become the watchword for everybody. And everybody globally that was aligned with the United States during the Cold War and post-Cold War era is diversifying strategically. And that's the overall framework in which Israel and uh, especially Gulf countries like the UAE and Bahrain are uh, reaching out to form their friendship. And particularly UAE and, and, and Israel are looking to form a military technological strategic alliance. Bahrain is also interested in a military relationship with Israel uh, in order to maximize their independent uh, defensive posture, their strategic position, et cetera, without relying on the United States, without leaving the American orbit, to be sure, right? But with depending less and less on Washington, which is in fact what they've been urged to do by every administration since the second W term, uh, you know, burden sharing, right? And uh, this is that. So I think that's the right context. The, the Iran and the JCPOA's details, right? That's the big picture. And that I think is not gonna change. Okay, so I'm gonna get, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> okay, no, I'm not muted, okay. So first question comes from uh, founding chair Bob Lifton, he's uh, saying that the strategy of passivity and counting on others has been a failure for the Palestinians. Now that they're starting to recognize, as they should, that they can't rely on the Arab states to move their agenda and should recognize that the Biden administration may be helpful only in limited areas, why don't they publicly take an activist position and present their own definition yeah. of a deal they can live with to the world community, recognizing the realities that exist in the area and start pushing for that deal. Uh, <laughs> I feel like a Christian scientist with appendicitis. Um, I've, been, I've been begging for this. Uh, I thought that it was the best response to, um, to Trump, you know, all along. And especially when it came to the Kushner plan a year ago. Uh, I mean, that's the only sensible response. And, and they have a ready answer, which is the talking points that they've been negotiating from in private since 1993, which are really different than their public pronouncements. For example, on, on refugees, where they're ready to make a very big compromise. On, on um, borders, where again, they're ready to make a serious compromise, etc. But uh, I think in, in the bigger picture, Palestinians have always, Palestinian leaders have been reticent about saying in public, what they've been willing to commit to with the Israeli negotiators all along on these emotive issues, because they don't want to pay the political price that would be huge among their public without the realistic chance of a deal. Now, my feeling is that the, the, the annexation threat was sufficient for the PLO leaders to say to the Palestinians, look, you know, maybe it would have been better to keep this private, but you know what, this is a national emergency. And this is an existential crisis. And we're just going to have to be blunt with you. And this is the way it is and live with it. And I think, you know, if they treated their public more as adults, they would have gotten a, a decent um, response. I don't think it you know, would have been anger on the left and the right and Hamas and communists or whatever. But I think a lot of people would have said, well, that's sensible, you know, and, and, and tolerated it under these conditions. The, the, so I think the political fear is exaggerated. Right. The second thing is, I think the biggest problem, the reason that, that they that they have avoided a national strategy in recent years and have preferred to rely on something prefabricated made somewhere else and have shied away from anything strong, proactive, independent and, and self-perpetuating is that they lack a national leadership. That, that's my honest view. Um, I mean, Hamas are, are well, let's begin with Abbas and, and the PLO. Fatah as a party is just fragmented sort of pockets of, of personal interests. 
Abbas, no doubt, does think of himself as a national leader. I mean, uh, but he doesn't calculate like a national leader. He calculates like the mayor of Ramallah, like a machine politics mayor of Ramallah, you know, uh, like Mayor Daly of Ramallah or something like that. And that's how he calculates, right? So otherwise, he would have taken these Egyptian offers to get back into Gaza in spite of all the risks that the Egyptians pushed. They got Hamas and Israel to agree that the PA would come back into Gaza take over not only the, the crossings and, the, and all of that, but also the ministries. Now, he didn't want to do it because he didn't want the responsibility without the money, and ha Hamas would not discuss disarming their militia, so he was, wasn't going to get into a Hezbollah-like situation where he had all the responsibility and they had all the power. I understand the risks were there, and there was also a risk that he would have had to let Hamas back into the West Bank, into places like Nablus, where they already have a base, and, and that that's risky too. So yes, there were lots of risks attacked, but, but that's what national leaders do. They take risks to be the national leader. So if you sit there in Ramallah and defend your little thing there, and your little businesses, and your little things, uh, and you calculate on that basis, you're not thinking like a national leader. And then Hamas, again, is split between those who think transnationally, beyond the Palestinian issue and are aligned with Turkey and the Muslim Brotherhood or, or even Iran in some cases, uh, on the one hand, versus the local guys who, are, again, are thinking like, you know, the, the little emirate of Gaza that they have, there, whatever it is, uh, and are worried about, you know, preserving their power in their own, you know, uh, desperate little corner of the world. Nobody is thinking and acting like a real national leader here. And because of that, they don't produce a national strategy because there are costs and risks and all that. And you would be required to put up and you would have to take responsibility. And it's just so much easier not to do that. And that's the tragic reality, I believe. So we have a question from Mark Gottesman, who says, uh, who asks, all said and done, even with new Palestinian leadership, what leverage, if any, do the Palestinians have yeah. to move Israel at all in the direction of two yeah, states? That's a, that's a great question. And I think there is no good answer to that question. This is, so for all the criticism I've made of the Palestinian leadership, uh, and I think it's all correct, the fact is that this is the most asymmetrical national conflict in modern human history, in my view. I can't think of a similar one. Uh, when you compare the capabilities uh, and power of the state of Israel versus that of the scattered and, and uh, occupied or, or exiled Palestinian people, uh, it's about as, as, as wide a gap in, uh, in capabilities and power as you could find in modern political history. So what's the leverage? Well, I mean, if, I know, obviously violence and armed struggle gets Israel's attention and moves things, but it, always Palestinians suffer more and pay more of a price. And the second intifada remains an object lesson in how badly that goes. Um, internationalization hasn't worked and probably isn't going to work. Boycotts and all that is a great way of moving people, but it doesn't actually achieve anything, right? And, and it's not, it's, it, you could maybe boycott settlements, but not Israel. It's, it's just not going to work. Um, and so the focus has been on this two-state solution, which is for which there is no longer leverage, right? So I agree with you. I think that is a $24,000 question. In the end, the Palestinians' biggest leverage has always been their existence, the fact that they are there and that they are not going anywhere, which is why the rhetoric of smooth steadfastness among Palestinians is not ridiculous rhetoric. Right? That's why it's serious and real, because merely by existing and being in their places, Palestinians pose an insurmountable challenge to the way to to the state of Israel and Zionism as it is conceptualized by most Israelis and their friends. That is to say, a Jewish majority and democratic state in the Middle East. And right now, the de facto state of Israel is neither. It's not democratic because it includes so many people who are disenfranchised, at least 5 million. Uh, it's democratic in part, but not, but that's a big but, right? It's an amazing but. And uh, it Jewish, well, it's certainly ruled by Jews, but it does not have a Jewish majority at the moment. And in fact, it may have a small Arab majority at this point, depending on how you calculate it. Do you include the 700, 800,000 Jewish Israelis who primarily reside outside of the Middle East or not, 
there are very few Palestinians who are included in these numbers who do. Anyway, my point is just that. Um, that Israel does not have a viable solution for the Palestinian people, right, without making an arrangement with them. And without an arrangement with them that allows both people to exercise their self-determination and is mutually agreeable and viable in the long run, there is going to be conflict. And the fact that the Israelis have had the upper hand for the past hundred years doesn't mean they're going to continue to have the upper hand for the next hundred years. And that is not a uh, solid basis for any society to move forward in peace and security and happiness. I, I would not want to be part of a society in which half of the people are thoroughly alienated and most of that half are enraged and for good reason, and where there is no possible way of making them see any version of the current arrangement as at all acceptable. And, and simply because they're human beings, not for any other reason, but simply because they want what any group of human beings would want. Uh, that, that is a problem that needs solving. Most definitely. I think we have time for one, possibly two more questions. We have more questions than we have time for, unfortunately. Uh, Mindy Stein asks, you said that now the Palestinians will have a working dialogue with the United States, but in the past, so. well, you didn't say it. Okay. Hopefully. Um, in the past, even when they had a dialogue, the Palestinians never accepted any compromises. Even when President Obama asked the Palestinians to come back and say what they would accept or disagree with, Abbas did not come back with even a response. How can that be changed with the Biden administration? Okay, so that's actually not true. What it what it has been, it's really interesting, the public perception. Israel is very, very good at telling its story, and Palestinians are very bad at telling their stories. But in addition, because Israel is a fully formed state, right? The Israelis, Israeli leaders who take positions you know, in public on negotiating stances don't risk that much. You can risk a lot. Rabin ultimately paid with his life because of what he was willing to, to contemplate, maybe, uh, and others. There is a risk involved. But Palestinian leaders have, have presumed, I think wrongly, that their public needs that, that it, keep the struggle going. Their public needs an expansive vision that doesn't sit very well with the compromises they have made already in private in 93, in uh, 99 and 2000, and even 2001, January 2001, and uh, with Olnert as well. But for example, I meet a lot of, Jew a lot of uh, Jewish Americans who think that the right of return is the big sticking point. But the Palestinians already, the negotiators, already agreed that the right of return would apply to Palestine and not to Israel, and that there would be a limited return, maybe 50,000 people over 20 years or 10 years or something like that, uh, judged by a committee in which Israel would have a veto about every individual of Palestinians who could return to actual Israel uh, under the rubric of family unification according to Israel, return according to the Palestinians. In other words, They've already, they've already committed to compromise on that. It, it is just they don't say this in public. They don't make it clear to, the, to their people because they don't want to hear the pushback. They don't want to suffer the intense pushback that would be there uh, without having secured an agreement. Uh, and this is, I think, a form of, of, of political cowardice and also of, of underselling the maturity of their audience that has been really damaging to the ability of Palestinians to say uh, what they will accept. In addition, there are lots of Israeli offers that Palestinians haven't taken, and people can recite those chapter verse. There are lots of Palestinian offers the Israelis have never taken, and people can't recite them because, like the Israeli ones, they aren't written down, and nobody talks about them for the reasons that I mentioned, but there are plenty of them. So I think the idea that Palestinians haven't been willing to compromise is wrong. And, and by the way, the bottom line is, in 1993, the Palestinians, the PLO recognized Israel in the letter of mutual recognition, and the Israeli response was to recognize the PLO as a, as a negotiating partner. That's all. So in, in terms of a, of a two-state solution, one side has actually done it, and the other side has not done it. And that's a big difference in my view. Now, you know, There are reasons for that, but still. 
Important point. And so we have a lot more questions, but unfortunately we're running out of time here, um, which I'm sorry about Hussein. We should have booked you for an hour and a half. Come back <laughs> next. Please do come back. We will definitely want you back uh, in the new year. Sure. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And once again, I want to thank all of our supporters who are with us on the call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. Again, if you've not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all so much for joining us. Once more, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Sign up to receive the weekly Coplo column in your email inbox and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. I love Michael's work, by the way. Thank you. So do I. We all do. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, this will be our last video briefing of 2020. So I want to thank everyone who supported us and engaged with our work during this challenging year. Hopefully 2021 will bring us all health, success, and better tidings than the past 12 months. So to everyone on the call, I want to wish you a happy and safe new year. And please stay tuned for an announcement about our next video briefing when we pick up our programming again in January. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Hussein. Everyone stay safe. Be well.